0: Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shauna Kinnair, an award winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers, and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller you'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing.
1: He left because he was an artist and he painted and he increasingly found that there was not going to be a way for him to continue being an artist and stay in his country. I was incredibly moved that when I eventually visited Eritrea, I met his family but He was the last person to be rescued off the 2013 shipwreck, and he watched his best friend drown.
0: My guest today is Brussels correspondent for The New York Times, Matina Stevis gridneff Before joining The Times, Matina covered East Africa, and she was the Europe correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Matina, you are so welcome to the Media Tribe podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to kind of meet in person. Uh, You're in Brussels. I'm in New York. What is the crack there?
1: (laughs) I know. I wish, you know, one day, not too far from today, we'll meet.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, Matina, we might as well kickstart like we do every podcast. And can you tell our audience about your journey into journalism and how you ended up as a correspondent at The New York Times?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess my journey is a little unusual in that I'm not an American or I'm not from an Anglo country. So I was born in Greece and I was raised in Athens. I studied in the UK and, and I went back to, to Greece for three or four years where I worked as a as a journalist, and I went back to the UK to do my masters. And at that point, it was the very beginning of the Eurozone crisis, which has really badly affected Greece and i found myself in demand uh, i you know ended up writing for british media and doing television c- trying to explain what was going on in greece it was also quite a technical topic and i was studying public policy and public economics at the time so that really helped me start my career and i had my first job at an english language publication with the economist while I was still a master's student and, uh, straight out of my master's, I, I got a staff position with the Wall Street Journal. So that was, I was very lucky as my country's kind of fate went south. My stock went up, as is often the case with foreign born correspondents. It's often their ascent coincides with them covering their own country. But that was my my big break. I worked at the Journal for eight years, uh, three years in Brussels covering the Eurozone crisis and the migration crisis. And then I was in East Africa for five years covering 16 countries in that region before moving to the New York Times and Brussels just uh, in the middle of 2019.
0: Amazing. So how long are you at the the Times now?
1: It's been a year and a half or so.
0: So pretty new. Early days. So that's, I, I mean, and you're in quite a... Well, you're quite busy. Obviously, Uh, migration crisis is is still a crisis, and um, you know your beat is it's fairly varied, isn't it as well? Because you're covering the eurozone, so really you could be covering absolutely anything, right?
1: Yeah, that's it. I think when you cover the European Union, the way you do that really depends on your audience. You know, for example, when I was with a journal, that was obviously a more economics and finance focused beat, although of course we did general news. Now with the Times. We're very interested in transatlantic relations. Uh, we're interested in Europe's place in the world, especially vis-a-vis countries of interest for Americans, such as Russia or China. Interested in big tech and how American technology giants are behaving on this side of the Atlantic. But also very interested and close to our mission are topics like migration, human rights, civil liberties, which are under so much stress in Europe and the European Union right now. So that's where the more sort of public service element of the work comes in as well.
0: Mm, I mean, it's a huge beat. What's interesting to me, Matina, is that starting at The Economist, graduating, I guess, to The Wall Street Journal, they're both publications with a finance business slant. Is it different than moving moving to the Times where, you know, it's more generalist, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, definitely differences. Of course, The the Economist is a different animal culturally. And as a publication, it's a weekly. They call themselves a paper, but let's be honest, they're a magazine. And of course, The Journal and The Times are, you know, top American daily newspapers. And so they have similarities in their approach and their standards, um, which are quite different to you know british publications style is a matter there as well but certainly uh, you know i think you you learn to adjust your lens when you work for the new york times and it suits me a lot it suits me in terms of my personal interests and my instincts and it's the sort of the career path i wanted to be on to continue being a career foreign correspondent rather than focusing more on economics and finance and business.
0: Get you. So, Matina, big question. Is there a story that you're, you know, you're proud of? And maybe it's something that's had impact?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the reason it it makes me feel a bit strange, I guess, is because it makes me reflect on how little impact we have sometimes, especially on topics that we really deeply care about. So just from my recent time at At The Times, I think, for example, I had this scoop about Americans or travelers from the U.S. being banned from visiting the European Union during the COVID crisis because of how poorly things were going in the U.S. with a pandemic. And that was a really impactful story. It affected so many people who all approached me as if I was their travel agent, which sometimes happens, but it also it also kind of held up a mirror to the U.S. and reflected that things were genuinely not going very well there. And that's that was the perception of the country from the outside world. But if I kind of look further back in my career, I'm really proud of the work I did in the Horn of Africa. In my last beat, I was... You know, one of the first reporters in nearly a decade to access Eritrea, which is uh, famously or notoriously reclusive. Um, I had the chance to travel to parts of Somaliland to record the rise of Middle Eastern powers in the Horn of Africa. So, you know, that type of journalism is very different. It, it is more, you know, it is more ground reporting and field reporting. It's very difficult to access, which brings intrinsic value with it.
0: Let's talk more about, about Eritrea because actually it's a country we've never spoken about on this podcast. And I think that's indicative of how difficult it is. I mean, it's impossible really to get in there as a journalist. As you say, Matina, it's an incredibly secretive country. Um, and you covered it from the, the lens of asylum seekers. Isn't that right? Young people escaping to neighbouring country Ethiopia because they had been forced or were going to be forced to be conscripted into the army as are all kids under 16 or 18, Matina. Uh, it's
1: it, the last years of high school. Last so years of high school.
0: Getcha. So so I believe something like it's, is it is is a one in 50 asylum seekers in Europe are from Eritrea, which is actually double the number of Syrians, which might shock our audience. So can you just tell us like, tell us a lot more about Eritrea, you know, your experience of, of covering a country so secretive and um, that's rarely covered in the news. Let's call a spade a spade.
1: Yeah, well, I um I I didn't know much about Eritrea. In fact, I knew it from reading asylum statistics, but I covered a big shipwreck that some listeners might remember. Uh, of a migrant boat off the coast of the Italian island of Lampedusa in 2013 where more than 300 Eritreans drowned and I got to Lampedusa very soon after the shipwreck and and I met with many of the survivors and interviewed them and and did stories about that and that's how I came to know Eritreans and one thing that really struck me back then and this is the beginning of the you know early days of the Syria war and the refugee movement from Syria and that was kind of my main experience talking to refugees in Europe every trans just seemed to really love their country that really hooked me and I was I was just so interested in the background and the history of the country its relationship with its much larger much more powerful neighbor Ethiopia and what the reason was for the flight of all these people in huge numbers, Eritrea is actually quite a small country. And so when I got my posting to Nairobi in 2014, I just really focused my efforts in trying to secure a journalist visa to Eritrea. And it took two years. <laughs> so it took a while. But uh, eventually it worked. And I was on my own, so it's very different to operate in a country that's very suspicious of, of visitors uh, as a writer than it is, for example, if you're a television reporter and you have a camera with you, or even if you're a photographer and you're, you're still carrying equipment, I was able to just walk around and be much freer. I was followed. I subsequently you know, was given good reason to believe by you know, Western intelligence services that I was my friend. Phone in my room was tapped in my hotel. My mobile mobile phones didn't work. You know, the Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, is is very beautiful. Eritreans are delightful, wonderful people, as mo- most people are in the Horn of Africa. From a cultural perspective, it's an ancient culture, very rich. Um, the architecture in Asmara is famously modernist. There's some incredible gems from the interwar period, especially Um, including a famous petrol station that looks like a spaceship. Um, So it's full of surprises. What's clear is that there's hardly any work. What's clear is that there's a lot of poverty, but also a huge amount of national pride and commitment to Eritrea's statehood and independence from Ethiopia. And I think that, in the context of you know a, a despot or a dictator who takes advantage of that and has you know was was a really lionized, very brave revolutionary fighter who then became president forever that that makes a very complex national identity and it explained to me why all these young people I met in Lampedusa lamented fleeing their country that they so loved, which is so beautiful and had hopes of being part of its rebuilding, but lost faith because they didn't see an end to being basically kept inside the country. For example, they would need an exit visa to leave, which is impossible to get. So it was, a, it was a fantastic experience. I don't think they'll be
0: inviting me back anytime soon, though. It's very interesting to hear that you went in legitimately, as in you went in on a journalist visa, you didn't go in undercover, which I do think is Quite impossible. We have, yeah, certainly tried to get teams in there in the in the past. It's um, and, and and I've heard it is a beautiful country. Um, I have friends from there, and also I believe it's it has magnificent scuba diving of all things. Now, here's the thing about immigration that baffles me. It has been proven time and time again that immigration works. It supports economic growth, which in turn helps citizens prosper. Everyone wants to see the economy grow because that typically means wages grow. Unless perhaps you're already rich. Yet a growing cohort resists immigration and the facts just don't seem to be reaching this crowd. So if, like me, immigration is a topic you're interested in, then I highly recommend listening to a series on NOAA, the sponsor of today's podcast. The series is called How Immigration Affects the Economy. You'll hear audio articles from the New York Times and Bloomberg supporting the case for more immigration, not less. The series provides different perspectives from Germany, the US, Australia, Japan, and Canada. If you haven't downloaded the NOAA app, then please take this opportunity to do so. The first 100 people to hit the link in the show notes on thismediatribe.com get one week of NOAA premium free. Importantly, you'll be massively supporting this podcast and will also get 50% off if you choose to subscribe after your one week free trial. Right, back to Matina. So so talk to me about that, you know, the people that you met who were escaping and and making these treacherous routes across the Sahara. And of course, they had to go via Ethiopia, which is, of course, the country in which um, Eritrea um, is trying to protect itself against after I think it was a a 30 year um, struggle. Isn't that right? For independence from Ethiopia. Tell us a little bit about those people.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the the issue, of course, is uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea reached a peace agreement two years ago for which the Ethiopian prime minister won a Nobel Peace Prize. He's now leading his country into a civil war. So things are actually really getting bad again, both for Ethiopians and for Eritreans. But, uh, you know, one of the people um, I remember from that reporting and who I'm still in contact with is a young man called Johannes. He left because He was an artist, and he painted, and he really didn't want to go to the military. And he increasingly found that there was not going to be a way for him to continue being an artist and stay in his country. I was incredibly moved that when I eventually visited Eritrea, I met his family. I met his mother and father and his sister, and they hadn't seen him in years and they were, you know, happy to talk to me about having met him more recently and spoken to him more recently in Europe. But, you know, his little sister told me, well, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back for him was that he he couldn't find um, the colors he needed to paint. The country's isolation disrupts all sorts of supply chains, including for, you know, obviously better quality art um, equipment and paint brushes and whatnot. And and that was kind of the final push for him. But he was the last person to be rescued off the 2013 shipwreck. And he watched his best friend drown. So this is someone who also went through incredible trauma to start a new life in Europe, and will probably never see his sister, whom I saw in 2016, um, again, so the you know the trade-offs and the decisions are immense.
0: It's huge, and I think sorry, I, I, this is my fault, but we we should definitely point out when you are conscripted into the army in Eritrea, it has been compared to slave labor. People do not get. I mean, you barely get paid. It's not like a life of luxury at all. Au contraire, it's it's a really, really grim and desperate life, isn't it? Um, I think another family that you portrayed in, in, in that particular piece in the Wall Street Journal, they, they mentioned they they see their dad once a year and he wasn't you know, he he'd he was confined to a life in the army as well. So it really, really is desperate times. And Martina, I want to talk to you also about another really great report that you had in the New York Times about the Greek coast guard. I'm, I say great, I mean awful. Um, do you want to talk to us about that?
1: Um, actually, it wasn't the coast guard. It was the uh, situation at the land border, um, but it's not not any better on the sea borders. I think, I mean, it was a very tricky story for me because I'm Greek and, and it was situated at a time that was extremely fraught for Greece because... Most refugees, all refugees, really, arrive to Greece through Turkey, and Greece and Turkey have very, very fraught, difficult relations, and this has been the case for a very long time, and it's especially the case this year. Relations are at historic low. And so uh, President Erdogan of Turkey has always been able to exert pressure on the European Union and on Greece um, by... Threatening to "quote unquote" open the tap of of migrants and asylum seekers, there is millions of people who are seeking international protection, especially from Syria, but from other parts of the world as well, as well as economic migrants. Yeah,
0: Tur- Turkey hosts maybe four million Syrians.
1: That's correct.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary. It really, really is. Yeah,
1: when Erdogan actually, uh, for totally unrelated reasons, his army had suffer a defeat in Syria. And he deemed that the European response was not sufficiently enthusiastic, opened the taps and announced to people who were seeking a life in Europe that the borders were open. Thousands of asylum seekers made their way to the Greek border, especially the northern Greek border with with Turkey, the land border. For Greece, that was a hostile move. Greece was already, you know, uh, receiving thousands of asylum requests every year and hosting thousands and thousands of asylum seekers, uh, stopping them from moving onwards into Europe. And so the government found itself under a huge amount of pressure. uh, And the way that pressure manifested in some cases was by becoming quite brutal with asylum seekers in the eyes of the broad public, frankly, that response was justified. People felt that Erdogan was, you know, playing war and using people. And in that context, these people were should have known better than to become embroiled in this. You know, my perspective is that these people are often so desperate to finally set up life somewhere where they can stay, which isn't the case in Turkey for the vast majority of them, that they are not going to really stop and think about the international geopolitical ramifications of them trying to cross a border. But what happened, what we discovered happened is that Greece pushed people back into Turkey, often by, you know, rounding them up in groups and keeping them in a place and then sending them back to Turkey, which is also known as refoulement or pushback. It's an illegal practice under international European law. Greece has Uh, repeatedly rejected our findings. They've accused us of using Turkish agents as our sources and decried our reports as fake news. And, you know, personally, that was very difficult for me because I am Greek. My family lives in Greece and a lot of my friends and, and people I care about deeply felt that Greece's actions in being aggressive with asylum seekers were justified in the context that these happened. That's not my place to say, but what we discovered is ostensibly illegal under Greece's international obligations. And for me, one of the lenses that I I applied on this story was that, you know, I always saw Greece's sort of edge over Turkey in this perennial um, enmity as lying in the fact that Greece is a European Union country and a rule of law country something that Turks have aspired for themselves, but you know their hopes have been thwarted, in particular under President Erdogan, who's become increasingly authoritarian. So for me, it was especially interesting that in a moment of crisis, instead of Greece sort of becoming more attached to this superior liberal democracy values that it's signed up to, actually chose to go against the law and it's the values it's espoused.
0: So, so for context, again, it's you know I I, I remember um, when we were covering the refugee crisis with Channel Four, I guess it was twenty sixteen, and, and and back then Greece and Greek people were very very open and welcoming to refugees landing in places like Lesbos and all of the other islands, and 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 it, it was magical to watch, and it, you know it really really was extraordinary in the sense that, you know, um, human beings care. However, fast forward, you know, four or five years, is there a sense of indifference, would you say?
1: Oh, it's much stronger than indifference. I think people are fed up. Greece became a holding pen for hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers when Northern Europe decided it wasn't going to take any more. And uh, an agreement was put in place that effectively penned these people in, especially on the Eastern Aegean Greek islands like Lesbos. And so it's really understandable that local populations are fatigued, as are asylum seekers who are stuck in this overwhelmed system, often for more than a year or two. And so it's a recipe for disaster that pits Greeks against asylum seekers, when the problem really is much broader it's at a european level you know greeks don't think these people should all stay in greece but these people also don't want to stay in greece and so it it really is a very unfortunate situation but i do see that elements parts of the greek population have been radicalized to become strongly anti-migrant and to be perfectly prepared for their government to put aside humanitarian concerns, issues of international law, because they think this is incredibly unfair on Greeks and Greece. And we have to look at that claim with sympathy because it is very unfair on Greece and Greeks.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it it is. It's fascinating from a policy perspective. The Greek government is newish. It's, it's center right. Um, and they have recently refused any more asylum applications. Isn't that right, Matina?
1: they suspended they suspended asylum applications just in the course of march they've been reinstated by magically no asylum seekers are arriving anymore um which may have something to do with their extremely aggressive what they call active border guarding, but is actually extremely aggressive behavior that includes pushing people back into Turkish waters. The Turks, of course, love this because it allows them to play moral superiority over a European Union country and say, look, here we are hosting 4 million Syrians and the Greeks are pushing people back into our waters. So the asylum seekers are stuck in a game of ping pong between Turkey and Greece and the European Union. It's unfair on everyone. And it's a deeply political and cynical game with real human victims.
0: Yeah, refugees being used, uh, they're being weaponized. You're actually making me think back to an extraordinary piece of investigative journalism from, you know, the New York Times, as always, um, but from um, the visual investigations team where they you guys had captured, I, I thought it was the, the Greek Coast Guard shooting at refugees on a dinghy and kind of sweeping by them in their massive ship in order to, you know, with the hope of of, of them falling overboard. And I mean, there's, you know, women and children on these boats.
1: Well, I mean, they would say they weren't hoping for them to fall overboard. They would also say this isn't true. And they would point to the fact that this video that you're mentioning was provided by the Turkish Coast Guard. And anything provided by the Turkish state, according to the Greek state, cannot be considered anything more than propaganda. That being said, part of our forensics team at the New York Times, which is incredible and was part of a Pulitzer Prize win this year, Uh, Does exactly that. It takes video, audio, or other information provided by sources, including state sources, and corroborates it.
0: We, we've had Maliki on the podcast. So we, I mean, it is, it's it's fantastic journalism. And I do, I think your name was on that piece as well. So it was obviously, it's actually great to see how, you know, you guys collaborate um, within the New York Times, even if you're in, you were clearly um, in Europe and, and Mal and his team are obviously in New York. So another extraordinary piece of journalism. What I think it's great, you know, it, it, it's very apparent that what you're doing, Matina, in your role. Is so, so important. Um, You know, Europe is at an intersection. Nobody knows what's going to happen next, but with the coronavirus, um, with Britain leaving the Eurozone, and there is still a migration and refugee crisis um, which needs to be covered, which has obviously fallen out of the news, unfortunately. One of my more lighter questions, uh, Matina, uh, potentially lighter, is um, whether there's a moment in your career that feels like it was rather crazy that maybe none of your colleagues know about that you've kind of put it to the back of your mind or blocked it out completely and that we'd love to only love to delve into right now. Yeah oh god
1: you know this is actually not only uh, you know hilarious and speaks to how unglamorous actually our work is but it also is a story of frustration about how some stories don't work out. Um, So when I was in East Africa I was trying to cover uh, renewed fighting uh, in South Sudan, a country which the world's youngest nation, as we always like to say, achieved statehood in 2011, but has been in the throes of civil war, brutal, brutal civil war since 2013. And it was uh, 2017, and I I was trying to sort of somehow cover this flare up of fighting and it was impossible to get into South Sudan. The South Sudanese authorities had thrice rejected my visa applications and it was becoming increasingly hostile for international journalists. Most of my colleagues were leaving. And so I decided to go to Uganda and try and and talk to people who were fleeing South Sudan in droves um, seeking safety in, in that neighboring country. And so I traveled to rural, two internal flights and hours of driving, got to the border between Uganda and South Sudan, started doing interviews. There were people arriving every day. I remember there was a footbridge and I was standing on the Ugandan side. And at the end of the footbridge was the South Sudanese side. And actually the so-called front line, because it was moving constantly, was not far from that, like that point. So it was so close. But I really focused my frustration on just getting the best testimony I could from the people who were mostly women and children because most of the men were staying behind to fight uh, to talk to me about what was going on, and also just to record how Uganda, which is obviously a poor country, was coping with what quickly became a million plus um, refugees from South Sudan and comparing that to my context of how European countries had dealt with with refugees, and that included. I'm like in deep rural Uganda, and the only hotels, so to speak, are basically hostels that are in the form of dorms, and I have a very uh, vivid recollection. I managed to get a, a room where I could sleep by myself, but there was no shower, and there was communal loo, so I, uh, I <laughs> this, this is a month before my wedding as well. <laughs>
0: I love where this is going, by the way.
1: I was in a real kind of pampering mode, like I must look great for my wedding. And um, I remember very vividly standing in a bucket, like a small bucket as well, not like a big one, um, with two bottles of water and trying to wash myself and thinking, God, how did I end up here? Like what, what decisions in my life led me to be here In this moment, I was, I mean, I was very pleased with myself that I was able to somehow wash because, you know, it was hot. I was in the dust and dirt all day as well. So, um, very unfortunately for completely, you know, non-interesting editorial reasons, that story never ran. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of been with, and then I was, you know, getting married. So I wasn't really gonna fight, (laughs) but that bucket shower
0: You've just illustrated to our audience how unglamorous journalism and especially foreign reporting is. I think people have this idea that it's all very, you know, uh, yeah. Nice showers, hot shower. No, if you even have a bag of wet wipes, you're doing well. Like, do you know what I mean? So um well, good for you, Matina. Um, and, and I'm sure you've had a shower since and, and in particular for your wedding, I'm sure you went all out. Listen, you are an absolute star. It's really lovely to to kind of meet you, as I said, and um and continued success with your work at the New York Times. It's incredibly important. Everybody should go and follow you on Twitter and keep an eye out for your your articles in the Times. Thank you so much, Matina. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Just to let you guys know, Media Tribe will be taking a week off for Christmas, but we're going to be back on the 30th of December with another hard hitter, which I know you're all going to love. And if you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review, as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with the G H, or at Shauna Kinnair on Instagram, and again, that's with the G H. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.